you gotta admit that I wasn't lying about this one. It's a bit of a doozy, right? And so, you know, excuse the length of this audio download. I, I, I really want to try to explain the core idea in a few different ways, and, and I'll repeat just a little bit, hopefully to help you latch on to what I think is a really intuitively appealing argument here, but it's a little bit difficult to get the first time around. So bear with me and remember that we're all in this together. So let's get right to it. And as I warned you guys, it might be a bit of a struggle getting through this one. We read for, well, this this recording is about Hofeld's Some Fundamental Conceptions as Applied to Legal Reasoning, written in 1913. So in this modern American legal theory class, we are well, we're getting a little bit more modern. We've moved at least into the 20th century now. And this is written by uh, Professor Yale, uh, had been at Stanford before that, and died at the age of 39, only uh, five years after this article was published. Uh, we'll see another slightly more modern Yale law prof who also died kind of tragically young, who wrote something quite beautiful. We'll read a little bit later in the semester. You know, it, I only say that, well, I don't know why exactly I say that, but I guess one of the reasons I say that is because Sometimes when you read very old things like this, there are parts of it which may seem kind of crusty and old, and and you almost maybe feel like you're listening to an old man when you're reading it. But this is written by quite a young man and is, well, quite revolutionary. So what's the main idea with this piece? And I, I'm going to step through it uh, with this one. I think it's complicated enough where I'm going to go through each section and describe what I think, you know, the main takeaway should be for us. But, of course, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on that. So what's the main idea of the whole thing? And he kind of sets this up at the beginning. Well, think for a moment about law's complexity in general and efforts to simplify it. I mean, law has a bunch of lists, principles. We can think about what various kinds of interests are. Think about what a property interest is really at the moment of sale. Every kind of legal argument is in a way an effort to simplify the law. Every brief that you write for a judge, every letter you write to a client is an effort to teach something about what is likely to happen if we take Holmes's view of law as prophecy, but it's trying to do it in kind of the simplest way. And inevitably, we're going to be trying to simplify a loud cacophony of competing legal principles or different legal principles. But in this effort, and he doesn't exactly say this, but I'm saying it, there is an inevitable march toward simplicity or towards attempted simplification. But he says, look, if we're going to simplify things, and, and he does here, clear thinking is needed. And for Hofeld, to see more clearly, to think more clearly, means to see at the same time more broadly. Remember what Holmes said at the end of The Path of the Law, that the person of theory tries to see law in its general aspect. There's a lot to be learned in seeing law in its general aspect, rather than as a zoological archive of particular instances of law. So we need to see law in its general aspect and then try to see what's simple about that. Use abstraction as a tool to make law generally easier to master, generally easier to understand. And then we can begin to see what's complicated as we apply those general principles to specific areas. So I'm trying to feel my way through in uh, translation here, but I think Hofeld is seeing the efforts of many lawyers towards simplicity as kind of forcing simple answers from hard problems through analogy, through the thingification of the law, right? So in, instead of uh, looking at this legal interest as a legal interest in the abstract, we say you own a boat or you own a house or, or the house is your property. And then maybe we try to make simple rules about boats and houses and property and we end up with a whole bunch of categories. And, and ultimately that isn't as simple as it first appears. And what's more, it obscures the real choices to be made. 
So he says, in short, it is submitted that the right kind of simplicity can result only from more searching and more discriminating analysis. And what we'll see here is that what he means by that, his purpose of seeing law in its more general aspect and engaging the right kind of simplification is to create a kind of atomic theory of law, right? To reduce law to its most basic atoms, uh, what he calls at the end of the piece, lowest common denominators. And there we can see the similarity between different branches or departments of law. That's not where he starts, though. I just want to go through step by step here. He starts with kind of a similar thing to what Holmes did, urging a distinction between legal and non-legal conceptions. So the idea here is, like I said, similar to Holmes' discussion of morality and law. It's that it's unfortunate that we sometimes use the same term to signify different sorts of things. So here he mentions the tendency to identify a corporeal thing as identical to a legal right. So a real thing in real space with a abstract conception of a legal right concerning that thing. So think of the problem about like asking who owns something or or whether something is your property. Property means the thing, possibly. So sometimes we say, hey, that's my property or let me go get my property. I wouldn't say that, (laughs) but you might, you know what I mean. But it can also mean the legal status with respect to that thing. So do you have a, a right to some property? Do you have property? Do you have property rights? Or do you have privileges attending some ownership of something. Now, are those all the same thing? And if they're not all the same thing, should we be using different words? So one question here as you kind of look back over this section and and think about this again, does sloppy language indicate sloppy thinking or does it lead to sloppy reasoning? Uh, We've seen two pieces now which are both urging a more careful use of language in law. So as one example of the problem here, He cites Blackstone for a number of things, and in particular, Blackstone's list of 10 different kinds of incorporeal hereditaments in the law. These are different kinds of specific legal circumstances that are categories, basically, that have been derived from cases and tradition. We've got advowsons, tithes, commons, ways, offices, dignities, franchises, etc. And these are somehow distinct from ownership of land or personal property. Hofeld criticizes this. All legal relations are abstract. All of them involve claims that you could raise. And that's all that the law sees, not real things, but claims. Okay, before we get to the big deal here, which is the section on jural relations and correlatives, there's a section on operative and evidential facts. And it's, it's a brief section which is about legal reasoning itself. Hofeld contrasts various kinds of statements, those that are essentially statements concerning necessary elements of a legal cause of action. He calls these operative facts. Contrast these with other kinds of statements, which are not themselves statements or facts that establish a cause of action, but are statements or facts that make operative facts, which we define, more likely. And Hofeld calls these evidential facts. The example he gives may seem a little bit confusing, but if you really get it, it it kind of drives home the distinction that he's trying to make. So a piece of paper that has terms and signatures on it and a date is evidence that a contract was entered. The operative fact in the law, because the law says if there is a contract, then certain things follow. The parties are bound by its terms, et cetera, et cetera. 
the fact that there's a piece of paper there is an evidential fact. It's a fact which tends to uh, cause us to believe that, in fact, there was a contract in the legal sense. And that's the operative fact, right? So the piece of paper signed by the parties on a certain date leads us to be more likely to believe that there, in fact, was a contract. He gives us some other examples here of words like possession and domicile, words that if we find that they apply in a situation, become operative facts. In other words, the law turns on the existence of such facts. And there are evidential facts, as he says, that make it more likely that we will conclude that those operative facts obtain. You know, the fact that you were carrying something in your hands uh, that you didn't seem to be dropping at the time, that makes makes it more likely that we'll conclude that you had possession of that thing. But the conclusion that you had possession is what makes the application of the law you know, that, that's what makes it uh, go, right? I, I want you just to note, so this is, I'm just giving you Hofeld's idea here, and I think that this distinction hints at something deeper in the human conceptual system and the way it produces and analyzes law. But for, na- for now, I just want you to reflect on how you think the law uses categories. Do you think that, kind of like Hofeld, that there are observations about things in the world the evidential facts, that somehow map onto the abstract system of rules that we have and that these rules make use of broad categories like, uh, well, operative facts. You know, so, so that one way of looking at this might be that there is kind of real space or human space and then there's law space. And in law space, there are things that we know of as facts. And these facts are kind of inputs into legal conclusions. Like, I had possession of the house. That's that's a statement in law space uh, about some category of possession, some abstract category of possession, and that a lot of doing the law is mapping on real space observations like I have a piece of paper saying that I own the house, I, I park there every day, I live there, etc. All of these real facts might lead a judge to conclude the law space fact, the operative fact, is true. And and therefore, you can kind of continue the reasoning on the law space side of things. I don't know. I might have made this much more complicated than even Hofeld did. But I think there's something really deep here uh, about the connection between legal reasoning and, and human sensory inputs and, and observation. I have some ideas about that. I'm not ready to share them with you guys now, but I'm, I'm interested in what your thoughts are. Okay. Well, let, let's get to the big deal. The big deal here is... Uh, the jural relations section. And and really this consists of, I think, three big ideas, or one way to break it down is into three big ideas. The first big idea is that law is not just about rights and duties. This is kind of in response to something that, it, well, at least I, I had this kind of conception too early in law school, but, but this is an old view of law that basically law is the commands of kings or rulers uh, imposing duties on the people. And that you could basically replicate the entire legal code by making a list, at least in principle, of all such duties, right? And that that's all that there is. There's either a duty or there's not. And Hofeld's first big idea is that relationships in the law are more complex than that. So if law is just about duties and rights, then what's the law created by trusts and wills and constitutions? Laws that appear to give people power to change things in the future. So law seems a little bit more complicated than just either I have a duty to do something or I don't have a duty to do something. Okay, that's big idea number one. 
Big idea number two is that all law is relational. Okay? All law is about describing when we're going to order someone to do something that they don't want to do. And this, this ordering, this process of deciding when we're going to order is always a matter of a relation between an entity who wants to coerce someone and someone who doesn't want to be coerced. After all, there would be no dispute, but for the fact that there's someone who wants a kind of coercion and someone who doesn't. And so all law involves a relation between at least those parties. Okay, now this is, this is a really big idea, and we'll see how it manifests after we talk about the third big idea. The third big idea is that of the opposites and the correlatives. So I think it's important to understand here, that just preliminarily here before we get into what they are, that, that these opposites and correlatives work by reference to states of affairs between people relative to some baseline of state coercion. Okay, now think about it this way. If we were a Holmesian and we were trying to figure out what the law is by thinking of how future cases would be resolved, and if we were able to do that perfectly, then we could kind of completely describe all rights, duties, privileges, etc. Now, now why? Because that's what those things are, right? So rights, duties, privileges, etc., for Hofeld, and I think for Holmes, just are the resolution of all those future cases. So do I have a duty not to be negligent and injure you with my automobile? Well, what does that mean? What it means is that in a future case where that is at issue, we will find I did have such a duty. I'll lose a case, if in fact, if I violated that duty. So that duties just are those things which if I don't do them, I will be subject to some liability for, uh, as against someone else who tries to enforce that duty on me. There was another writer who wrote about this, and, and as you'll see later in a piece that I wrote, you can think of the state and its coercive powers as a giant, as a potentially violent giant. And the question in law is, when can I call on that giant? So I have a dispute with someone, and I want the giant to come and fight my fight for me. Okay, so I can't make you do what I want to do, but the giant sure can, who's very powerful and strong. When can I call on that giant to come and help me out? When will the giant compel you to do something you don't want to do? When will this giant stand by? And let you fight it out. Says, so, you know, I'm not going to get involved, the giant says. This is between you guys. When will you be able to alter the rules affecting when the giant jumps in and does something? Okay, so the giant decides things. Who gets to decide when the giant jumps in and when the giant doesn't? When can I affect that? Well, this kind of perfectly maps on to Hofeld's jural opposites and correlatives. So you have a right exactly when you can get the giant to come and enforce on someone else a duty. Okay, so I have a right to performance of, uh, to your performance of this contract that we entered. What does that mean? It means that in a lawsuit, a judge will enforce a duty on someone else to do something. Okay, so every right corresponds to a duty on the other side. If I have a right, it means that I can sue and the giant will come in and it will make someone else do something or not do something, depending on what, how, what that duty says. Now, a privilege is different from a right. Okay, so if I have a privilege to do something, it means that the giant won't come in and stop me. The state won't coerce, uh, won't coerce me. Meaning that if someone sues me and says, hey, you've got to do this or you, or you can't do that. If I have a privilege, it means that the state says, well, you can do it if you want. Okay, don't have to do it, don't have to uh, omit doing it, but you have the privilege to do it. 
And if I have a privilege to do something as against you, it means that you have no right to stop me. Okay, so if I have a right as against you, it means that you have a duty to do something. If I have a privilege against you, it means you have no right to stop me. Really what's going on here, I think, is that there is, at least for these four different concepts, either there is a duty or there is no duty. Okay, so if there's a duty... It means that someone else can come in and sue me and make me do that thing. It may be the state itself, which is suing me, right? But someone else must have a right enforceable in court uh, in order for us to say that I have a duty. Now, if I don't have a duty, right, it means that I have a privilege. The absence of a duty is a privilege. And my privilege means that you have no right, no legal right to come in and stop me. Okay, now that's not all that there is. Remember, the second big idea was that, uh, or the first big idea was that rights and duties don't describe all of law. We've got these other weird things in there that appear to give people power to change the law. You know, I'd give an example of contracts. If we enter a contract, we have created new rights and duties. What, how do we describe that? Well, Hofeld gives that the name power. A power is the ability to create new rights and duties, or to alter them. But remember that these are relational. So if you have a power, it must mean that you can put someone else under a duty, right? And so that person is said to have a liability, which is that they are subject to your imposing a new duty on them, okay? And the example that he gives later in the piece is, if I make an offer to you, so long as that's still outstanding, I am under a liability, See, your acceptance, if you accept that, we now have a contract, right? And we are both now subject to the elements of performance in that contract. We are subject to that new law that we've made. So the minute that I make an offer, I will be subject to duties under that contract if you accept it. And so you now have a power. So my offering a contract gives you a power to impose new law on me and to have it imposed on you, of course. And I am under a liability. Now... Are there instances such that with respect to certain kinds of things, we say that you cannot impose a duty on me? If that's the case, then we say that I have an immunity. I'm immune from your doing something which creates a particular kind of duty on me. An example of this is is really quite common. That's my so-called right of free speech, which is really an immunity from Congress's creating a law which restricts my speech, at least restricts it in a way that is found to be unconstitutional. So this this is a piece of law which gives um, creates an immunity, right? So it, it removes from Congress the power to put me under a liability for my free speech. Okay, now that doesn't, I'm not under a general immunity from any laws of Congress, obviously, and that's not how these things work. They work specifically. As against Congress, I have certain immunities, And as an American, I have certain privileges, certain things that I can do and that I'm not under a duty not to do. So this should give you a sense of like the privileges and immunities clause in the Constitution as being, well, those two different clauses in the Constitution which reference it may have some added meaning for you after reading Hofeld and kind of taking on board Hofeld's distinction between privilege, immunity, right, duty, power, etc., Okay, before I do an example, and really I'm just going to take one of Hofeld's examples and we'll step through it, I just want to zoom out to a slightly higher level to try to see if a different way of talking about this makes it 
make more sense. Or maybe it's the same way and maybe a little repetition will help it make more sense. So although he has these eight different concepts, I think they really boil down to two concepts. Okay? There is duty and there is power. Combine with those things, they're opposites. Okay? So you take the idea now that I either have a duty or I don't. If I have a duty to do something, it means that someone else can come in and get the state to make me do that thing or make me omit the thing that I have a duty to omit. Okay? So most of the criminal law is stated, it's, it's, it's a list of duties that you have, or at least a, a, a rule system for uh, imposing duties on me. You shan't do that. You shan't? Uh, you shall not do that. You, you must do this. You must not do that, right? So torts also imposes a whole bunch of duties. And when we enter a contract, we impose duties on one another. We have things that we now have to do, which are obligatory, which are not optional. If I don't have a duty with respect to a particular thing and a particular person, it means that that person cannot come into court and make me do that thing or not do that thing. I now have a privilege. So all that privilege is is the absence of a duty with respect to another person. It means that a lawsuit will not lie, forcing me to do or not do that thing. Okay? So in the, if we have a contract that says I'll show up and, and teach you guys, then the person with whom I have that contract now has a right to enforce my doing that thing so long as the contract is valid. And I'm under a duty to that person to do that thing. Now, if someone else in the world hears that I'm under that contract and doesn't feel like I'm performing it, they don't necessarily, they don't, depending on the way the law is framed and third-party beneficiaries, they don't necessarily have a right to enforce that duty. This is why duties and rights are between two entities, usually people. I don't have an abstract duty to teach according to that contract. I have a duty to parties on the other side of the contract. Okay, so I either have a duty or I don't. If I don't have a duty, I have a privilege. And the people to whom I have a duty have rights. The people against whom I have a privilege don't have a right, right? They have a no right, as Hofeld calls it. Okay, so there's either duty or there's not. There's also either power or there is not. Power is the ability, is the ability through volition to change the law, to make the law, to change it, right? So I have a power, and together we might have a power to enter a contract and create new duties. If I make an offer, I now give you the power of acceptance. If you exercise that power, you've now created new duties on me, okay? So if I have a power, it means that I can create new duties of, of a particular type on a particular person. And I, maybe by me, I mean Congress, or maybe I mean uh, private parties, if I cannot do that, okay, so if the law does not allow me to put a particular kind of duty on a particular kind of person, then uh, that person is said to have an immunity, right? They're immune, and I do not have a power. I have what Hofeld calls a disability, okay? So this is what kind of where these correlatives and opposites work together. And instead of memorizing eight things, you really just need to think about how he's classifying things in terms of duty and its absence and power and its absence, and then combine that with his insight that all law is relational, that a duty is something that's in between uh, two people, power is something in between two people, right? And, and all of this can be adjudicated in court, right? And at least in our system, right? That, that, that's what law is. It's settling disputes between people. In that sense, it's relational. All right, I hope that helps a little bit. I know this is a little bit extemporaneous, but let me, let me try to take one more shot at it with this example, and I've gone on long enough, but I think this one justifies at least a little more time because, who knows, maybe some of you will find that some parts of this 
make it perfectly clear and other parts don't. And I'm not sure exactly who's going to latch on to which parts. But so he's got this passage that he mentions from this guy, Gray, an, another legal scholar. Here's what Gray writes. The eating of shrimp salad is an interest of mine. And if I can pay for it, the law will protect that interest. And it's therefore a right of mine to eat shrimp salad, which I've paid for. Although I know that shrimp salad always gives me the colic. And, um, okay. So great example, right? So first this means if we, if we analyze it from a Hofeldian perspective, rather than talking vaguely about interests and rights and everything else, what's really going on? So first it means that paying for the shrimp creates a privilege to eat. I, I, I certainly don't have a duty not to eat. In other words, no one has a legal right to stop me. Okay. So I have, um, no duty as to anyone not to eat the salad. Another way of saying that is that no one could win a suit against me on the basis of my eating the salad, okay? So this is where, again, right means something specific. It means the ability to call on state coercion to back up your claim. Second, this passage might mean truly a right to eat undisturbed, meaning that others, so if I have a right to eat my salad undisturbed because I've paid for it, which would, again, be law that we could make or not make if we wanted to, it would mean that others have a duty not to interfere with me, okay? So if I have a right to eat the shrimp salad undisturbed because I paid for it, if the law recognizes that right, what it means is that my paying for it and doing those things, there's some operative fact which is now created in others a duty not to disturb me. Now, we're being a little imprecise and the relational aspects of this kind of show up because the law probably doesn't create a duty as to all people under all circumstances not to interfere with me. Okay, so if I paid for a shrimp salad, I may have a right to eat it as against most people most of the time, but I may not have a right to eat it undisturbed as against a police officer who has a valid warrant. That officer might have a, uh, a privilege to interrupt me, someone who thinks that I'm choking you know, maybe even if they're mistaken, maybe the law will not recognize my claim that they violated the duty not to interfere with me when they performed the Heimlich, right? Maybe they said they were justified in thinking that or they're excused or something else. And in essence, the law recognizes a privilege to interfere with someone's eating if you think that they're choking. So all these things are possible. So here, here's another uh, hypo that Hofeld gives with respect to the shrimp salad. Suppose that Tom owns the salad and Tom contracts with Jill Tom promises that he will not eat the salad, okay? So the key point, again, is that this is relational. Tom now owes a duty because of the contract not to eat the salad, but owes a duty to Jill. Jill now has, correlatively, a right to have Tom not eat the salad. But with respect to other people, not Jill, Tom has a privilege to eat the salad, and they have no right you know, Hofeld says no right, no dash right, but but we can just say it in common parlance. They have no right to stop him in the sense that if someone else brings a lawsuit saying, hey, Tom's eating a salad, unless they can point to something else that created a duty for Tom not to eat the salad as to them, they're going to lose that lawsuit. Okay, lots of interesting points here. I want to end it up, and I hope that that's enough for us in our discussion, maybe to get to further clarity. I want I want to wind up, though, with the end of the piece. Oh, oh, yes. Before I do, look at the passage concerning Langdell on pages 68 going over into 69 on what to do with the contract that says that it remains open for X days. Is that enforceable? 
Langdell says not. Hofeld says that this makes no sense, that Langdell's conclusion makes no sense. I, there's something important here, and I want you to think about that, and we'll talk about it at our meeting. Hofeld ends the whole piece by talking about these eight conceptions, rights, duties, privileges, no rights, powers, liabilities, immunities, and disabilities, as the lowest common denominators of the law. And unlike mindless simplification, which is meant to make a particular set of disputes or a particular dispute seem easy by just through rhetoric, Hofeld is identifying something real here. He's tying it to the way that we resolve disputes. And the claim is that it makes things easier and it helps us do law better. He says that, you know, at first glance, it may seem really hard to see any similarity between things like, he says, conditional sales of personality, escrow transactions, agency relations. These things may seem like really different fields. And if we see them as really different, we may make the law really different and everything gets a lot more complicated. And we don't see the fundamental similarities between what we're doing in each of those. But it, here's what he says. But if all these relations are reduced to their lowest generic terms, the conceptions of legal power and legal liability are seen to be dominantly, though not exclusively, applicable throughout the series. In other words, what we see is the, the fundamental relations are, are operating in a similar way in these seemingly disparate fields. That makes law actually easier to do. By such a process, it becomes possible not only to discover essential similarities and illuminating analogies in the midst of what appears superficially to be infinite and hopeless variety, but also to discern common principles of justice and policy underlying the various dual problems involved. An indirect yet very practical consequence is that it frequently becomes feasible by virtue of such analysis to use as persuasive authorities judicial precedents that might otherwise seem altogether irrelevant. Okay, so... That that actually shouldn't seem so foreign to you guys. I think you have an intuitive grasp of it, that if, you are, if you're working in one area of the law, say, I don't know, employee-employer uh, relations, uh, contractual relations, that you may well cite as authority for some legal proposition some bit of law from some other area, maybe even something as disparate as family law. But certainly within different kinds of contractual regimes, we borrow all the time. And in fact, we create broader categories so that we don't even have different bodies of law in particular areas. Sometimes we need to. But seeing the similarities, seeing the underlying similarity and kind of engine of law helps us to understand why we might sometimes need particular bodies of law and why other times we are comfortable with generic solutions. You know, this whole enterprise of seeing what look like different areas of law as really being different aspects of the same thing is about developing peripheral vision in the law, about seeing connections and, and recognizing that, like I said, that some parts of the law that seem distinct are really just different aspects of the same underlying process or idea. Knowing that and being on the lookout for it, developing that peripheral vision will make you a better lawyer. And maybe even if you don't want to write an article like this one, Emulating Hofeld in that way, you know, seeking out uh, in, in Holmes's terms, right, the getting to the bottom of it and seeing the true relations among things or, or seeing deeper relations among things will, will make you a more creative and, and better lawyer, one who is able to draw from broader areas of the law and help a judge or a client see the broader picture and how it fits together. Okay, well, I'm quite sure I didn't do that piece 
complete justice. Luckily, we have our discussion coming up, uh, and I'll have another shot at it, and we'll have the benefit of your reactions and, and your great thoughts. But before then, we'll talk about, I think, a much more accessible piece, and one that hopefully you'll find interesting, Law in Books While in Action. Until next time.